Hi, everybody. Happy 4th of July, and welcome to another episode of F This Movie, the podcast that celebrates our freedom. My name is Patrick Bromley, and I am joined today by everyone's favorite freedom fighter, Mr. JB. Oops. No oops. See, originally, (laughs) when you introduced me, I was going to say, welcome to Earth. Okay. But then I remembered that that funny little boy... Yes. At the front of watching trailers with Doug yeah. last Friday, he yeah. said, Welcome to Earth. Welcome to Earth. And I didn't want to step on Doug's toes, so I tried to think quickly of another line from Independence Day. Oh, here's one. Okay. It's time. <laughs> That's my new favorite line in Independence Day. We'll get back to that. We're talking about Independence Hello. Day today because we've been talking about Independence Day basically for a week. We did a show on alien invasion movies and then Doug did Welcome to Earth and now we're talking about Independence Day proper on the podcast, which you can find at fthismovie.blogspot.com, twitter.com slash fthismovie, facebook.com slash fthismovie, and you can email us at fthismoviepodcast at gmail.com. File under guilty pleasure. Very nice. Um... Before we talk about Independence Day, J- before we talk about Mr. Independence, Mr. Clavin on the thing with the thing. Before we talk about Independence Day, JB, have you seen anything good lately? Well, it's interesting because we're now at the point in the summer that's post Super Eight, where there's nothing to see. No, because as opposed to Patrick Bromley and those of you who listen to this podcast know that Patrick is unswerving in his dedication to find shit, pick up the shit, smell the shit, and unfortunately sometimes taste the shit to establish that it is shit. A couple years ago, I decided if it's shit, I don't need to taste it. So there's a hole in my movie-going knowledge. Mm-hmm. The hole is shit. Right. So if I think it's going to whip me into an apoplectic frenzy, right. I just stay home. Right. So, some things you avoid just because you're not interested, like the Harry Potter movies. There are some people who are excited about the Harry Potter movies. I like the first three Harry Potter movies. Okay. I like them a lot. And again, <clears throat> when I saw the first one, the Quidditch game was edited at such a rate, I could not comprehend it. That was the beginning of the end. Uh, I think I got to three or four. I think they're really well done. I I bear no grudge against Harry Potter. You're just Potter. not interested. True. On the other hand, um, Green Lantern, which thanks to your podcast, I avoided time and money. We did our job. And Pirates 4, I saw no compelling reason to see that. Nope. Although, if you live in the Chicago area, the Patio Theater, which uh, is on Irving Park Road and was shuttered for quite a long time, is a huge old-fashioned movie palace, and they recently reopened their doors. And starting Friday, July 8th, they're going to be showing Pirates. So I think for $5 and the penalty of sitting through Pirates, I'm going to go there to see the theater, to right. see the refurbished right. theater. Right. That's the purpose of that. I have never seen a Transformers movie. I have never been a member of the Transformers party. Any further questions, I'm going to take the fifth. So post-Super 8... It's a it's a barren wasteland for me. I I look and everything that I want to see I've seen, and the other five movies at the multiplex I haven't. But last night, through the wonder of on demand, I saw Troll Hunter, a film from Norway uh, that I was warned against by the nasty curmudgeons at Time Out Chicago, and actually liked it a lot. I thought it was very entertaining. It's not a perfect film. I thought there was a lot to like. I thought it did a lot of things well. Uh, The previous podcast that we did about Super 8 talked about the game, a game that Independence Day plays as well, Mm -hmm. where you establish a threat, and then you keep the audience entertained for an hour by suggesting the threat or teasing the threat or working with suspense of the threat. And I thought Troll Hunter did that really well. Uh, Much like Mamma Mia, a film which only I like, because part of it is like taking a two-hour vacation to Greece, I felt Troll Hunter was a nasty, violent two-hour vacation to Norway. <laughs> Which is the only kind of vacation to Norway you can take. It's a rough place. And uh, as Patrick and I have commented in the past, much like the fact that the Maelstrom ride at Disney's Epcot is the best thing in that park, um, 
all the Norway stuff in Troll Hunter is so integral to the film is this American remake they've announced. Does it take place in Norway? I don't know. I it, don't know anything right now about it. It would seem to have to, unless... Uh, I don't know. There's trolls in the United States. Right. Just go with it. Right. Um, it's also playing at the music box, and usually I would not pass up an opportunity to go to the music box, but I was glad I saw it. Yeah, that on-demand feature is great, except that most of the movies it shows are the ones that come to the music box, so you're always sort of faced with, well, do I make the drive? And like for 13 Assassins, I'm glad we did, because yeah. obviously that deserves to be seen on a big screen, but uh, I don't know, maybe something like Troll Hunter you can see at home. I liked it a lot, although again, in terms of all the Norway scenery, that would have benefited yeah. by the music box's big screen. What have you seen lately that you haven't talked about on the podcast? That's that's my problem. Unfortunately, uh, appearing on each on on all of these podcasts makes it more difficult for me to see new stuff in between recordings. Maybe so. you should stop appearing you on think? all of them. Yeah, right. <laughs> so the only new thing I've really seen since recording the last podcast just a few days ago is uh, Transformers, which. I already wrote a review of on uh, fthismovie.blogspot.com. And I have to say, if you're on the website, if you're not listening to this or any of the other venues, if you're actually on the F This Movie website, scroll down and read Patrick's Transformers review because, again, I find it ludicrous and very funny that um, one of the highest critical things that people can say about this one is that it's the best of the three. Right. See my previous comment about the shit. <laughs> this shit has fewer pieces of corn embedded in it. Let's talk about Independence Day. <laughs> a movie that a lot of people hate also, but I think it's appropriate, especially in the summer that the third Transformers is coming out, and people are going nuts over it, that uh, we talk about a summer blockbuster from a simpler time, the time and of 1996. Lots of posts on different websites, as I think you pointed out, that just like when the first Transformers opened, uh, people are claiming this is the best movie ever made, or their favorite movie of all time, mm -hmm. which I find suspect. But I thought it would be interesting, and maybe this will lead us to the Patrick Bromley moment. That's a lot of pressure. When JB is given pause to think about the incredible thoughtful thing that Patrick says, ultimately, it might all come down to this nonsense being subjective, and... Uh, Beauty is in the eye of the beholder, and we all have different feelings and uh, critical uh, aesthetic things that we bring to the enterprise. But the, th the question I would like us to answer today is this. It seems to me um, that Independence Day is not the greatest thing ever made, but it's tremendously entertaining, and obviously both of us hold it in very high esteem and have a lot of affection for it, in that it seems to me that it's really, really good cheese for lack of a better word. Um, I put it in the same category as The Poseidon Adventure, the original one, which is my favorite bad movie of all time. It is awful in so many ways, and it is cheesy in so many ways, and yet I have such an amount of affection for it. So the question I started to ask myself is, Independence Day is big and loud and overwrought in many ways. In fact, in some ways, I thought it was like a Douglas Sirk film with really good special effects because so much of it is so soap opera-ish. Right. So many plot elements. That what distinguishes Independence Day, which is good cheese, from something like a Darren Aronofsky film, which similarly is overwrought right. and presented on a, right. on a grand scale, which I find to be bad cheese. What is the difference between that other than it's me? It's, making the judgment. I would argue it's a sense of fun. And that's kind of... I stopped thinking about this because it was hurting my brain. But it seems to me that good cheese has a sense of humor about it. Right. You watch a Darren Aronofsky film and you resent it because you think, this is so overwrought and yet I'm meant to take this seriously. And that if I do take it seriously, it's as if the filmmakers are making fun of me because I can see what it is, or are they similarly taking it this seriously? Are they a humorless, pretentious lot? Because his films are so 
I can't even think of the adjective intensifier to describe it. His films are so humorless, they raise humorlessness to another level where it almost becomes humorous. Right. How single-minded and and despairing Requiem for a Dream is. Yeah. How crazy batshit everything becomes in um, in Black Swan. Yeah. And I realize that this is a, a handicap of, of mine own. Um, I cannot see the forest for the trees when it comes to Aronofsky or Michael Bay. I just... I, right, and, and yeah, you're talking about obviously two very different sides of the filmmaking coin, I think. I will... Okay, we're not even talking about Independence Day, but like... I understand that both of them sort of employ similar tricks and sometimes get similar results. I will say that my issue with Michael Bay, aside from just how stupid and aggressively obnoxious his movies are, at least Aronofsky, even if you're rejecting it, I think, to your point, you're saying it's it's uh, it's humorless, and uh, but I think there's a sincerity to it. I think he really believes in all of sort of the nonsense he's putting on screen. And I think he's technically brilliant. Right. Whereas I would suggest that Michael Bay is technically ham-fisted. Right. But he happened to stumble upon something right. that appeals to people's chimp brain, <laughs> which is if you edit beyond the human capacity to understand, people who find everything boring because they're not intellectually developed enough to understand it will respond like a chimp right. to right. very fast-moving, flashy things. And now we're unfortunately at the point where people are even finding Michael Bay movies boring, as evidenced by a comment I heard walking out of Transformers. Michael Bay's movies, my issue with Michael Bay movies is that there's no sincerity to them. They are the most cynical movies I can imagine where it's just, here, you assholes will eat this up. And he puts it on screen. Uh, you know, he underestimates uh, the American movie-going audience constantly, and they, they reward him by lowering the bar. And to get back to, like, Roland Emmerich, you know, Roland Emmerich and Michael Bay are constantly talked about sort of in the same sentence because they both make these big bombastic blockbuster movies they big they both love to have explosions and all these things and there's always sort of a debate who's better michael bay or roland emmerich and for me it's always roland emmerich because again there's a sincerity to his movies and i can point to if you're going to compare the two and and we'll talk about this more obviously in terms of independence day um the worst Roland Emmerich movie, which to me is Godzilla, feels the most like a Michael Bay movie. Yeah. And one of the best Michael Bay movies, which is Armageddon, which is not a good movie, but it's one of the best Michael Bays, feels the most like a Roland Emmerich movie. That's a very, very good point. It seems to me that the emotional center of Independence Day is not cynical and calculated. Not you, at all. You can say that parts of the film sort of follow screenwriting 101 in that in the first 20 minutes, a number of things are set up right. specifically to pay off at right. the end. Right. And not to, not to jump the whatever that metaphor is, um, I think there are at least two moments in this film of, of real emotion. And this might say more about me than the film, but every time I watch the film, I am very, very affected by. And I actually think it's good screenwriting, although I think it, it would be just as easy for some people to look at it and say it's bad screenwriting. Spoilers for Independence Day coming up, I assume. Yes. Okay. Um, the First Lady is is very, very badly injured, and they finally get her to the hospital, but it's it's too late, and it's clear that, that she's going to die. And uh, she and uh, Bill Pullman have this conversation, which I think is the payoff of the earlier conversation mm -hmm. where he's not very good at lying to her. But I think they do a pretty good job in the few scenes they have, and most of them are on the phone, of establishing that these are two people who might actually be married and love each other. But the moment I'm talking about is when Bill Pullman walks back in the hall. That doesn't work for you. No. <laughs> Considering what the line could have been. Yeah. I think it's a it's a fine line that works, okay. especially that works in the stylization of this entire film. I'm not looking for Ibsen. Right. No, and I agree with that, but it is one of those things where, you know, unfortunately Roland Emmerich and Dean Devlin have never sort of met 
an over-the-top kind of cliche that they don't lovingly embrace and is mommy sleeping is oh, I like <laughs> that's that. hard to take. Okay, let me try I felt it. like if they could have just like hugged and she kind of got it. Or I know, I know she's young. She's not going to automatically understand that mommy is sleeping, but it's just... It, I like it, that. It, 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 to me, it's a moment designed for that works. reaction. But not as well as, and I think it's interesting that um, it's very difficult for Randy Quaid to play anything except Cousin Eddie. Right. He's been effectively typecast. Right. And then I'm surprised that even for a 1996 film, and I might be wrong here, so check me on this. At the beginning of the film, mm -hmm. his alcoholism is kind of played for laughs. Right. Which is sort of politically incorrect these days. Witness the Arthur remake. We don't think it was as funny as we did in the teens, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. There's a trope that lasted a long time. And the 80s. And the 90s. At the end of this film, when he says, tell my children I love them very much, mm -hmm. I, I think that's great. Yeah. Gets me every time. Yeah. Surprised I'm not choking up right now. <laughs> but I'm not going to because I know Patrick would laugh at me. Yeah, I would. It's true. Um, speaking of the daughter. Yes. Um, a cursory internet search... May Whitman. So you know. Oh, sure. Yeah. See? I don't usually do this, and Patrick is the master of who played what. So the little girl, who's the daughter on Independence Day, is later on uh, Arrested Development as yep. the boring girlfriend. Anne. And uh, she's in Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. As the lesbian ex. The, the only female ex. Right. So she had quite a career. And now I feel terrible because I watch her even as a child in Independence Day and all I can hear is Jason Bateman's really? Her? <laughs> <laughs> and that's not fair. She's a kid. I thought that was typecasting. Speaking of typecasting, yes. we have to give a shout out to uh, James Rebhorn. Yeah. And he's in everything. <laughs> yeah. He must be the most dependable he gets there on time. He knows his line. He never blows the tank. He's made 114 movies. Wow. And and very few people know his name. Isn't that amazing? Everybody knows his face. But and his as I did a cursory IMDb search, very few good movies. Yeah. And I think they even said, usually typecast as the stern father or uh, overly serious doctor or officious government agent. And, uh, he has James Cromwell's career path. Yeah, pretty much. But I was really surprised at some of the stuff that he had been in because you remember the type, but you don't remember him. Um, he's in Meet the Parents. Okay. He's the he's the um, the the um, the gentleman who's marrying Terry Polo's sister. That side of the family of okay. the wedding. Okay. Remember, this is the first Meet the right. Parents before right. they introduced all sorts of other characters. Um, he does often uh, play the same part, but I would suggest that he's very good in Independence Day. So good that when the president fires him, which is extra significance now that we've had this economic downturn, and the worst thing that could ever happen to anyone right. is to get, oh, he's fired. <laughs> oh, that's the worst thing ever. Um, that um, he's he's Weasley enough, which brings me to my actual point. Okay, about James Rebhorn? No, about oh. one reason Independence Day works. Okay, can you table that for one second? Okay. Because I just want to point out that I, I think James Rebhorn is good in the movie, but unfortunately he falls victim to... Uh, Roger Ebert gave the original Die Hard like a two-and-a-half-star review, which is wrong. Uh, and one of the things he pointed out that he hated about the movie was the Paul Gleason character, whose only function in the movie is to be on screen and be wrong at all times. Yeah. And that's James Rebhorn in Independence Day. No, I agree. But in terms of the performance, I had uh, commented um, in the, the column I wrote about the Ten Commandments, and this certainly happens in many, many, many movies, that everyone in the movie seems to be in a different movie. Yes. Everyone is stylized in a different way. Yes. Say what you want about Independence Day. Everyone is stylized in the same way. And maybe that's a function of the dialogue. Yeah. But I don't think it is. I mean, you can you can knock the performances for being a little over the top. Judd and Hirsch. I, and you took the words right out of my mouth. But Judd Hirsch engenders such goodwill on our part um, that it's sort of interesting that really... 
you could argue he's the one that overacts the most. Yeah. I mean, there are moments where it's like, we, we get it. I, I, would, I would suggest that Will Smith, who I like in the movie and who I liked when I saw it in 1996, um, is trying a little bit to be in a different movie because he seems to be the only actor in the movie who's posturing a little bit, trying to come off as cool. Yeah. When I think everybody else is happy to be sort of square. And the scene where he's dragging the alien carcass through the desert, yeah, everything they have him shout, I would argue that it's, it's that scene that dates the poorest because it really comes off as shameless action movie right. uh, posturing right. or something like that. Um, that being said, I would argue that Welcome to Earth still works. Yeah. Um, he punches the alien. But then, and this is a phenomenon you've pointed out, they they underline the joke. That's what I call a close encounter? Yes. Two lines later? And welcome to Earth, bam. Because it's actually, it works really well. Because first of all, I think it's a funny line. And second of all, there's the punch and the action on that. It's really one of the first times we see an alien. So yeah. you have the, you have the shock the time, yeah. of that thing coming out. Right. And then Will Smith putting it into place. The fact that there's this need for the second joke right. is a problem. So I would argue um, that one of the reasons why the film works is that all the performances seem to be of a piece. We are in the same universe. Although I would argue, and we've talked about this before, the, the world of this film, the universe of this film, is the self-referential universe where every television show and every piece of right, music right, right. is somehow inexorably linked to the theme. Right. And does that ever work? No. That always comes across as director's snot-nosiness. Right. I can't really think. Or just being sort of overly impressed. I still... Uh, it always pulls you out of the I'm film. being an apologist, obviously, for Joe Dante. In The Howling, it doesn't bother me. And even, to some extent, in American Werewolf. I think those two movies kind of pull it off. I think in American Werewolf, it might work because like the Transformers movie, it pummels you into right, submission right, because in American right, Werewolf right, in London, it's right. boom, boom, right. boom, boom, especially the music. I mean... Yeah. Well, and at one point, are it's there just any John Landis' voice going, he's a werewolf! <laughs> Which... At the end of I didn't American get the werewolf, first time, but now I do. At the end of American Werewolf, is there an American popular song of the that last century... the moon that hasn't been, that in the hasn't been yeah. used? I mean, someone, someone did some research on that. <laughs> Um, so I think all the performances are in the same universe. Also, I would suggest, and maybe you can speak to this, that this film resists my cynicism, perhaps because it is a story well told. I would suggest that you can knock the dialogue if you want, but that the structure of the script is very well done. Um, that this film resists my cynicism in that it it sucks me in and I and I don't sit there, you know, um, um, it it allows me to suspend my disbelief, um, whereas other films don't do that. Also, I thought you could say something very interesting about the structure of this film because it's a cliche, but saying that something is more than the sum of its parts is really true here because if you were to take apart this film, if you were to dismantle it into its uh, component pieces, none of the component pieces are as compelling as the whole. Right. In fact, you might even find, well, uh, the whole thing with Will Smith being a fighter pilot, that's, eh, that's not the greatest thing. And the whole thing about Jeff Goldblum and his job and his father, well, that's not the most compelling thing. And the thing between the first lady and the president, and that that's not... that that if it wasn't uh, inter-edited, if it wasn't cross-cut so effectively, you would effectively find out that each of the, of the component stories isn't the most compelling thing on Earth, pardon the pun, but, but that taken together, they are very compelling. I, I agree, and I think that, uh, that speaks to something that you had said the other day when we were talking about Independence Day, which is that the movie is very much sort of a disaster movie. Yeah. And so you have to set up all these different characters early for the first hour and then you have the disaster which in this movie obviously is the alien attack and then you see how everybody reacts and or perseveres through the disaster and um and yeah so the it's the disaster that's the real star of the movie but you have to sort of surround it with all these other 
smaller plots and characters. And again, I don't I don't mean to keep comparing this to something like um, Transformers, but I think it's a good comparison. You know, here's the 1996 version, and here's the version for the 2000s, even the first movie from 2007. Um, and how wildly different they are, um, and why I think one works and one doesn't, and part of what I think tr fails about Transformers is that it attempts to basically just focus on this suburban high school kid interacting with giant robots, and to your point, that's not interesting enough to carry us through And that the, the canvas movie. should be bigger. Yeah. So I give this film um, a lot of credit for story construction, for plot construction. In fact, the last couple times I watched it, it seems to me that besides doing a really good job of keeping all these balls in the air at the same time in terms of establishing all these little subplots and all these characters, that the entire script is engineered to lead us to one moment where there's a turn and then the second part of the film can begin. And... The first time I saw the movie, I thought that turn was very entertaining and delightful, and I rewatched it uh, last night, the night before, and I and I had a similar um, entertaining experience when uh, the Judd Hirsch character brings up Area Fifty One, yeah, and the president scoffs, and then Weasel says, "That's not entirely accurate. That's a wonderful moment." Yeah, watching it again, right, and watching it again, I just, I don't know how important all of the Area 51 stuff is to the story. I mean, it is, because that's where they get the ship, and that's where they meet the alien, where Bill Pullman can form a psychic link so that he knows what their plan is. The movie is filled with just major shortcuts. Convenient. <laughs> yeah, uh, convenient. I mean, really convenient. At one point, Will Smith hijacks... A helicopter, and then happens to find his girlfriend in the desert. Um, He's a really good pilot. <laughs> stuff like that. I mean, it takes these huge shortcuts. But the Area Fifty One stuff, I just feel like I, I don't know. I don't. I don't think it totally works in the movie. It's fine because we get to meet Brent Spiner, and like, it's all fine. I'm along for the ride, and so I don't really question any of it. But to say, well, aliens have actually been here before, you know, 50 years ago, how does that help the story or advance it at all necessarily? Well, it's 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 a much bigger version of the shortcut that right. you just referenced. Um, although, hold on, i got to get this straight in my head. That I think what you're saying, that, that the film has all these shortcuts, can actually be turned on the people who claim that parts of this film are implausible, people's biggest argument being... You mean to tell me that Jeff Goldblum with a Macintosh computer can hack into the alien's computer system that's 200 years advanced from us? How on earth can that be true when back then even Macs and PCs couldn't talk to each other? And again, our answer to this is, okay, so in a film that reveals that Area 51 is real, that we have one of their ships, and um, Will Smith is actually able to pilot it, and that they've... Uh, perfected an anti-gravity device you think the mac thing is implausible my favorite part by the way of the alien ship uh vinyl upholstered seats with headrests no we answered this the other night what is it my family and i were sitting around watching it and someone i think it was my wife brought up awfully convenient that those aliens who are completely constructed different no and maybe they needed a little one minute aside to show this. And I may be wrong, but I don't think I am. I think the assumption is, A, we've had their ship for so long, and B, once it's established that Will Smith is going to pilot it, we added the seats. We added okay. the seats. Yeah, we, those those are wanted, aftermarket yeah. accessories that we ordered from uh, By the way, I've seen GM. the movie 15 times and never noticed it. And this was the first time. Yeah. So, it, you know, whatever. It, it kind of sticks Here's out. Here's where I'm a hypocrite, though, because we should at some point address how polarizing this movie is, that a lot of people are like, it's fun, it's entertaining, we enjoy it. Every we, review on IMDb, 10 stars or 15 or however many stars they use, all the stars on, in heaven, or one. <laughs> right. And I think it's interesting that even the people who shit on it give it one. And even the horrible negative reviews, every one of them points out one thing they like. Everyone says, this is ridiculous, this is corn poem, this is horrible. But good special effects. The acting in this film is atrocious. I really like Brent Spiner. 
which I think says a lot. Yeah, I, I, I get why somebody would sort of reject it, why it's just, this is too stupid, this is too hokey, you know, whatever. Um, and I'm a hypocrite because, to your point where you're saying, you can buy the thing that there's aliens, but you can't buy the stuff with the virus. In a different movie that I didn't like, I would be saying, okay, but a movie has to work within the universe that it creates. It's okay that it sets up a world where aliens invade the Earth, but now you still have to play fair inside that universe. And there are quite a few leaps that Independence Day makes that... Because this is clearly a fast and loose universe, but they've <laughs> yeah. established that. Yeah. In fact, all of this talk, and again, people on the, on the uh, internet, which as I understand it is a series of tubes... The biggest problem they have is that Jeff Goldblum is able to hack into their computer system with his Mac. Right. And it reminds me, I don't think they do it anymore. David Letterman used to do this bit where he'd have one of his most laconic crew members do this little comedy piece called Film Gaffs. And this he's the tall guy with the blonde hair. And he would say, let's take a look at a scene from a recent movie and see if you can spot the gaff." And then they would show the clip and then they would cut back to him. And the one that I remember that encapsulates this entire Independence Day frenzy was, we're going to take a look at a scene from Finding Nemo. See if you can find the gaff. And they show a little clip from Finding Nemo. And when they come back, he says, did you spot the mistake? Fish can't talk. (laughs) (laughs) That's what that objection is to Independence Day. They have established, clearly we are not, being hyper-realistic. Right. And if you're really going to nitpick, I think the Mac subversion of their computer system would be the least of my problems with this film. I guess. I don't know. <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of stuff. And again, we're willing to go along with it because we like the movie, and part of that may be because it speaks to some of our sensibilities or things that we like, like 50 science fiction movies and alien invasion movies, and disaster movies, and big sort of corny Hollywood productions. And quite honestly, uh, any film that features something between a a husband, any film that features something between a father and a son, I'm... Okay. I'm... In fact, at one point, doesn't Judd Hirsch say to Jeff Goldblum, I'm proud of you? Yeah. It's before he leaves. Yeah. And... um, Lately, because as most of you know, I am a public high school teacher, I have uh, come around to the opinion that teachers and parents don't say that enough. That as parents, we need to say it more. And I find if students come to me and say they've done something terrific, like raise their ACT score by a big magnitude, one of the most affecting things I can say in response to that is, I'm proud of you. Mm -hmm. I'm proud of you for the hard work you put in. And I have a feeling just as human beings, we don't say that to each other enough. So again, you have that. And then you have the fact that it's a father saying it to his son, and I've been reduced to jelly. As over the top as Judd Hirsch is in a lot of the movie, um, I do like his his scenes with Jeff Goldblum in those moments, sort of between where he comes up with the plan and when he gets on the alien spaceship. I like Jeff Goldblum overall throughout the movie. He's sort of self-aware and funny in just a different enough way from the rest of the movie. Um, and there's a lot of humor in the movie, and not all of it works. Um, in fact, a lot of it doesn't. But again, I, I will continue to go back to Transformers because I just saw the third Transformers, and one of my big problems with it, not only is, is that the jokes aren't funny, but that they're so badly timed that they always come at the wrong moment that when a moment should be sort of building up ahead of steam, Michael Bay just can't stop throwing in some lame, groan-worthy joke to undercut the whole thing. And Independence Day, even if you don't find the jokes funny, I think they always come in the right spots, that he, there's a sense of pacing with, yes. with the humor. Um, but one of the issues I have in terms of the humor, and it's something I've said about Independence Day for a long time, and there's the moment where uh, where they bring, Judd Hirsch brings up Area 51 and everybody starts rolling their eyes, oh boy. And it's sort of repeated again at the end when Randy Quaid volunteers to be a pilot and everybody starts rolling their eyes. And here's the issue that I've always had. It's, it's especially egregious with the Randy Quaid speech. Uh, Sir, I would like to volunteer. I used to be a crop duster. I fought in Nam, blah, blah, blah. And I'd just like to say on a personal note, ever since I was... Uh, abducted by aliens, I've been looking for a little payback. And as soon as he gets into the, ever since I've been abducted by aliens, 
Adam Baldwin and the other guys all start rolling their eyes. Oh, here we go. Crazy guy with his alien abduction story. He's volunteering to get in a jet to go fight the fucking aliens that are fighting in the sky. Why are we assuming that he's crazy for mentioning having been abducted by aliens? Which led to, I believe I paused the film, and my son, who's very smart, and I had a very interesting debate about whether Randy Quaid was actually abducted. Right. And although you can argue it's beside the point, my contention was the film itself leaves no doubt that that actually happened. Right. I believe we're supposed to believe that that happened. Although my son had an interesting theory that argued that whether it did or not, it certainly leads to um, the moment uh, where he does become a hero, and so maybe... It doesn't matter as much. I'm misrepresenting I, 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 his position. No, I, I I agree with that, but I think what you were saying that the movie suggests that that did happen. I think that almost his last line, his "Hello, boys, I'm back," only works because all of us in the audience have sort of agreed to believe that yeah, he has been. You know, like I'm back is funny because and, it's true. And I don't think I'm being it's a twelve year old because it's true. I don't think I'm being a twelve year old boy when I suggest that the act of his plane going up into the bowels of the ship... I never got that, but maybe... ...is a visual metaphor <laughs> right. for what they supposedly did to right. him. I mean, right. he even says, up yours. Right, right. But my proof that he was actually taken aboard a ship... Another example of too many jokes. Sorry. Too many jokes. Oh, yeah. It's just Get rid of up yours, stick with I'm back. Right. They couldn't decide. I'm back one. is funny, up yours is not. Um... That earlier in the film, when the men in that diner slash bar are making fun of him because he was abducted, the construction of the film argues that he's telling the truth because as he, disgusted at their constant mockery, gets up, that's when the ship appears. Right. So it's almost like, you're so silly, right. you, you were... Oh, the film is presenting right. this as a response to their mockery. But we're we're still supposed to be laughing at the moment where he says, ever since I was abducted by aliens and they start rolling their eyes, oh, here goes the nut job. We're supposed to laugh at that. And that's wrong because we should be on Randy Quaid's side. And that's one of the things I like about the film so much because uh, clearly now I think we we're in a mindset to regard alcoholism as something that's not funny and is sort of a disease this guy fought in vietnam at least in the reality of the film which as we all know a lot of guys came home from vietnam with issues and if it's true and i think he is that he has been um taken aboard a ship and and horrible things have been done to him well this guy's got a lot of reasons to act the way he does and his redemption at the end is is very wonderful yeah. and i'm sorry Tell my kids that I love them very much. I I cannot be cynical about that. Have you ever watched um, the, I think, the deleted scenes on the DVD or yeah. the Blu-ray? And yeah. so you've seen the version where he's in the crop duster plane? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that doesn't work. No, and... Uh, <laughs> as was... hard to believe as it is that they could train all these guys to be fighter jet pilots. Although, again, he did fight in Vietnam. Um, it was Jake that first uh, pointed out that uh, most of the deleted scenes, and maybe even a couple more of them, are um, on YouTube. And in fact, there's a website that goes into incredible detail, like down to seconds of timing with the dialogue that was cut out with frame grabs to illustrate. So if you want to see the difference between the theatrical version and the extended version, I think it's only 18 minutes difference. That's easily encounterable on the, um, on the internet. I did want to bring up, just before we stop talking about Randy Quaid, um, I thought it was really interesting at the beginning when we were introduced to Randy Quaid as a crop duster pilot. For a few moments, the film engages in this is Cinerama and shows us the view outside of his plane. Mm -hmm. And it's just like a little bonus. It's like a little value added. Because if you were watching that in a theater, I have to guess you would get that feeling of Ooh, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. verisimilitude and what's not to like about that? Again, the whole movie speaks to this idea that Roland Emmerich and Dean Devlin grew up on a very specific kind of American movie and that they're sort of trying to recreate that. And that, to me, is why there's such uh, a lack of cynicism in the movie and why it, it, it wants so badly to entertain you, but not, not at the expense of, I think, insulting you. I, I don't feel 
insulted when I watched the film. And again, we have to answer the question, why is that so? Because 93% of all films make me feel insulted. Right. And this movie does insult a lot of people. Yes. Quite a bit. Um, another thing I wanted to bring up, and yet another listing for our glossary okay. of F this movie. All right. And uh, this morning, my wife and I um, were trying to name this. And we haven't pinned it down. So at this very moment, Patrick Bromley is going to uh, tell us what we're going to call this from now on. And every single one of you who listen to the podcast are aware of this and have experienced this. In every movie made before 2001 that takes place in New York, there is a montage of long shots that establishes where we are. Mm. They're establishing shots. And most often, and I think, I think every time, although I haven't seen every movie ever made, one of these stock shots in the montage is of the Twin Towers. And although this was not intentional at the time, of course, it makes us stop. And it lends a very different mood to that montage. And this happens at the beginning of Independence Day. I know it happens at the beginning of Something Wild. It was a famous landmark. It's included in a lot of these montages. So even if the film is lighthearted or a comedy, we get this unexpected moment of pathos. Now here are your choices. Here's what we're going to call this. The shot of the World Trade Center in the opening montage of any movie set in New York, which now has this unintended effect of, oh. We could call it Twin Towers Regret. We could call it AMOS, Accidental Moment of Silence. My wife suggested shock and awe. Because the moment you see it, you're like, oh. And then, oh. You like that one the best. Shock like, and oh. I like accidental moment of silence also because I think it could apply to more than just uh, the Twin Towers. I don't know what else it would apply to, but I think it could. And again, I want to make it very clear. Because but shock is, and awe is very is, funny. This is 4th of July weekend. I am not mocking no, no, the no. incident. It right. was one of the most horrible tragedies in our nation's history. I have nothing but sympathy for everyone involved and the people who helped and the victims' families. What I'm commenting on here is something that's uh, that's specific to film. Right. I'm talking about the fact that movies now have to handle the fact that those films have uh, this unintended artifact. But I have one more choice. Okay. And that whole preface was designed to take the sting out of the final choice. I don't know if you're going to like this one. Should we call it Nine one wah, <laughs> no. nine one wah. No, you like that one the least. <laughs> that one, that one the least. Yeah. So are we going to call it shock and awe? Shock and awe is good, or, or accidental moment. Of accidental silence. moment of silence. I like both of those. And again, watching Independence Day again, I noticed um, that Independence Day is not uh, not free and clear of this phenomenon. And there's sort of a, a line in the movie that speaks to sort of what you're talking about. Not not September 11th, obviously, but the movie is so much about enjoying the destruction of the United States. And at one point, I can't remember who it is. I'm sorry, but Bill Pullman grabs some guy and says, you like, you think this is fun? People yeah. are dying out there. Yeah. And it's like, well, that's hypocritical because all of this has been for our entertainment. So Given don't that try it really and make... didn't happen. Right. And I remember when Independence Day was originally released, some critic, and I wish I could remember his name, that amazing shot of the White House blowing up, he called that the money shot. Yeah. The money shot of uh, Independence Day. Independence Day is one of those movies, and there haven't been very many since. Um, I went to see Independence Day the night that it opened uh, at like a midnight show. And I remember this was at the big old Woodfield 1 and 2, which we've talked about. The big movie theater. It only had two screens. <laughs> which back is now when, a shoe store. Back when you could actually do that. And it was across from a shopping mall. And... Uh, I went at about 6 p.m. to go buy our tickets for the midnight show. This is when you had to do that because you couldn't do it online. Um, and I have never seen anything like it before or since. I got there at about 6 p.m. I pulled up to the theater, and it was like it was like a scene out of Night of the Living Dead where from all directions, people were just swarming the movie theater. Um, every show prior to the midnight show was already sold out. I, we went to the midnight show. It was 
it was the single most sort of audience participatory movie going experience I've ever had. People were standing up and cheering. Never anything like it. And it was a movie that was a phenomenon, and there haven't been many sense where you just felt like everybody is seeing this movie and it came out of nowhere and that that also made it feel different because now sometimes uh when a movie is this giant uh success it's been marketed to you ahead of time as though it's going to be this giant success yes it's you're told everybody's going to see this movie this sort of came out of nowhere yeah, I mean, there weren't any huge stars in it. Will Smith at the time wasn't yet Will Smith. This is one of the films that made him. Will right, Smith. definitely. Um, and so it was kind of a surprise, and it was a, a surprise how big it was, but I would attribute most of its success to the shot of the White House blowing up because that's what the movie was sold on. You didn't know anything else about it except aliens blow up the White House. Well, and at this point, I think we have to talk about the guilty part of this being a guilty pleasure because watching it again two nights ago, I began to see, and it's much, it's much more subtle than something like Top Gun, but there are huge parts of this film that are an invitation to fascism. That uh, when aliens come to Earth, do we treat them like A.T. and give them Reese's Pieces? No, we punch them in the head until they're unconscious and yell, Welcome to Earth. And in Bill Pullman's um, motivational speech at the end, which is shamelessly cribbed from Henry V, by the way, um, it's like that scene should have a footnote at the bottom of the screen. Thanks, William Shakespeare. Um, he, well, let me go back a little bit. Um, one of the criticisms of this film that I kind of agree with is the rest of the nation, the rest of the world, the rest of the earth is clearly waiting for the United States to solve this problem. Right. And when including the British guy even says about time about like, time it, it's <laughs> the it, Americans it, have figured this out it's taken you the length of an American Hollywood film my God and that actor later shows up in Christopher Guest yeah yeah he does he's the guy with the toy trains and I find it interesting that that's a British guy um, uh, who's deployed in Iraq mm -hmm. because Iraq is given a lot of mention in this film sort of in the background and I wonder if that's on purpose. Because, of course, the president in the film flew uh, bomber missions in Iraq in the first Gulf War. But uh, during uh, Bill Pullman's big speech, he makes the point that the 4th of July will be a planetary holiday. No longer, and it's, oh, okay, uh, oh, 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 oh. And one of Judd Hirsch's worst lines on the plane is, all you need is love. John Lennon said that. He got shot in the back. And again, I know who John Lennon is, and I know how he died, and I think it's interesting that we have this father sort of spouting this 60s hippie stuff, but why else include that coda to his line if not to make it another piece of this jigsaw puzzle, and you agree that the script is very worked out, yeah. um, that it's another piece of evidence that loving your neighbor doesn't work and sometimes you have to punch him in the head and blow him up. Yeah. And now that being said, and now I'm going really far afield, I do agree that occasionally that's how you have to deal with a bully. Sure, sure. That that's the only thing the bully will well, understand. Well, listen, Bill Pullman at one point even says, can't we figure out a peaceful solution? And the alien says, no, I want you to die. Right. So what choice do we have? And at least they make Jeff Goldblum's environmentalist character one of the heroes. True, which leads me to my next point okay. that you're going to hate. Okay. I am not suggesting this film was psychic or that this film predicted the future. Can you suggest that? Can you prove it that didn't, didn't happen? happen? Um, I'm not saying that this film was interesting in that it predicted future events. I don't think it predicted future events. I don't think it's psychic. But I think, as you pointed out, that millions of people went to see this film, and it became part of their consciousness. So go with me on this for one oh minute. Oh, boy. This film sets the stage for the next two American presidents. Okay. After Clinton, uh, Al Gore runs and is defeated by Bush. And while I have to think that the Bill Pullman character in the reality of the film really was a fighter pilot, we get a president who pretends to be a fighter pilot, 
to the extent that one of his most memorable moments in his presidency is when he lands, there's quotation marks around the word lands, on that aircraft carrier in a flight suit and announces mission accomplished. I can't be the first person to notice the similarity yeah, with that. Yeah. So what I'm suggesting is Independence Day doesn't predict. It paves the way okay. for the fighter pilot president. People like Bush. He was a straight shooter. He was very simple. He made things very simple. And then I would argue, and boy, this took me a long time to work out, I thought, well, then the easy answer would be it also predicted the next president because Will Smith is Barack Obama. Okay. But I don't think he is. No. I'm, I'm not going to well, because he's black. Okay, simple. Case closed. No, I don't think that. But what I came to think was that after eight years of the fighter pilot mission accomplished, that this film paved the way for the next president. And I would argue that Barack Obama is Will Smith and Jeff Goldblum put together. Oh. Okay. Think about it. <laughs> Did we just have a JB moment? Did I just blow your mind? Totally. I think there's something to that. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm always annoyed at the end. And again, I shouldn't be I'm annoyed. I'm always annoyed with you when <laughs> you bring up this nonsense. I shouldn't be annoyed at, uh, at Independence Day for being too obvious. But when Jeff Goldblum says to Margaret Collin, Colin, who is the poor man's Elizabeth Perkins. Yeah, um, that's what we were saying during the film two nights ago. Um... You know, you're always you're always saying, "I'm trying to save the world." Here's my chance. Like, no, 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 we got that. <laughs> you didn't have to say it. We've watched you talk about saving the world the whole movie. We figured out that now you're going to get to do it for real. You don't have to spell it out for us. But again, Independence Day leaves little to the imagination. Uh, going back to what I said at the beginning of the podcast, yes. that one of my favorite lines is, "It's time." Yes. And I think we need to add this to the F This Movie Glossary, okay. which clearly lately yeah, I'm expanding. obsessed with. <laughs> um, and I have to credit my wife for this because she's the one who came up with this concept. Whenever you're watching a movie or a television show mm -hmm. and someone has a very small part that, though it's small, really calls attention to itself. Okay. Someone walks across the screen. Someone delivers a letter. You have to assume it's like the director or somebody affiliated with the movie. She calls it contest winner. <laughs> Win a part in a right. major Hollywood film. There's a few moments of And like, at the beginning of Independence Day, someone yeah. walks in. I think it's in the first 20 minutes. It's time. And then walks out of the screen. Contest winner. So now, F this movie is making your viewing of bad movies better, because now at least you can sit in the theater right. and yell, contest winner. I always turn to uh, Erica and say, like, my big break. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and let me tell you, I will die a happy man if one day I am in a movie theater, and that occurs on screen, and a complete stranger on the other side of nice. the theater yells, Contest winner! Nice, that's the dream. So we need to start doing that. Um, the movie is filled, even with in the small parts, with recognizable faces. Uh, even Randy Quaid's kids are James Duvall and Giuseppe Andrews, and the daughter, whose name I don't know, of course, played Sandra in Matinee. Lisa and Jacob, or Jakub. love her forever. And, yeah, she's so good in Matinee and sort of underused in Mrs. Doubtfire. Oh, jeez. <laughs> and I looked her up on IMDb, too, and yeah. much like Amy There's Wright... There's an IMDb, too? I looked her up on IMDb as well, along with the other people I looked up on IMDb, smartass. And much like Amy Wright, who was in Pink Floyd the Wall and The World According to Garp and Near Dark and then disappeared, mm -hmm. on the audio commentary, um, Adrian Pazdar even says, I've lost you, Amy. Give me a call. Um, that Lisa Jacob, or Jacob, sorry, I don't know how it's pronounced, uh, acts in a couple films, and in 2001... No more. Hmm. Disappears. Let's get her on F this movie. To talk about matinee. Um, with the exception of, and, and, and I don't understand this, well, first of all, I don't totally understand why they kill off the First Lady. It's fine, it leads to that moment that you like. And in every disaster movie, they sort of have to kill off a few of the principal characters. Yeah. So I understand it. Um, I don't understand why Vivica Fox is a stripper. 
whatever, she's a stripper. With the exception of that fact, though, and the shot we get of her working, um, I think the movie feels very, very old-fashioned. Like, it could have been made I would argue in the that, 50s or 60s. I would argue that Vivica Fox's stripping contributes to the old-fashioned feel of the film, is that, yet again, we are shown a strip club where the women don't actually take off their clothes. Well, right. Although, in the movie's favor, the scene in question suggests that the the uh, the gentlemen attending this gentleman's club are so riveted by the alien invasion story on right. TV that she doesn't get to the point where she would do that. Um, but that leads to that interesting conversation where she reveals to the first lady that she's an exotic dancer, but she makes no apologies because he's worth it. And then she says, I voted for the other guy, and it's a dumb laugh in which to get out of the scene. Um, I actually like that line. Do you? I do. It makes me wonder which party Bill Pullman belongs to. And it also adds to my George Bush, Barack Obama crazy theory, because as we all know, Michelle Obama was an exotic dancer. So there's that. There's that point of With the exception of that, though, I feel like the movie is very old-fashioned, and that's one of the things that I've always liked about it, and one of the reasons I think it still kind of holds up um, now, 15 years, I can't believe it's been 15 years since this movie came out. But What uh, I compare it to is, I think the most old-fashioned filmmaker is Ron Howard. Yeah. Most of his films, and I like half of his films, Yeah, they could have been made in the 40s. Right. Um, the one I'm thinking of specifically, I like Apollo 13. I like Backdraft, and Backdraft is... So old-fashioned. Yeah. You turn down the color on your TV set and maybe adjust the sound so it sounds tinny, and you're looking at a movie that could have been made in 1947. Yeah. Yeah, he was doing that for a while, and then something happened. But, uh, um, yeah, I think the movie still kind of holds up in the same way that it did in, in 96. I'm not, I don't think that it's just a case of, well, I enjoyed this movie in 96, and so therefore I still like it. I think I still sort of enjoy it on the same level, and I know that if I were to have my irony guard up, I would just laugh at the whole thing because it is silly, but I think the movie is largely aware of how silly it is. And I think the movie doesn't make a lot of apologies for that fact. Although I have to ask, Bill Pullman, is he in on the joke, do you think? I I go back and forth watching his performance. He's such a curious actor. Yeah. Um, I can't tell if it's in on the joke or bad. And it's not just this film. Because I think he's very effective in Lost Highway. Yeah. And I think he's very good in The Accidental Tourist. Yeah. But in all three of those performances, I don't know if he's in on the right. particular joke right. uh, of that film. Zero effect, by the way. Bill Pullman's best performance. I, I agree with you there. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure. But again, much like I was saying earlier about the universe of the film... His performance fits the film. It does. I agree. Because in a very real way, he's the center of the movie. Right. Which is interesting because, again, watching it uh, this time, I was thinking, boy, if this movie were made now, I get the feeling that it would be told not from the perspective of sort of the military and the president, but from the perspective of just the average guy. Uh, The Tom Cruise War of the Worlds, you know, kind of the same thing where it's like we have to handle it from the perspective of average Joe. Um, but I like the fact that Independence Day is told from that the president is the main character in an action movie. And I keep going back to the fact, and you mentioned it, that this film resists my cynicism. It is almost impossible for me to sarcastically, ironically mock this film. And I can't say that about a lot of films. There aren't a lot of films that resist effectively my ironic, mean-spirited um, mocking. Um so for all of you who know me, this piece of information can be used to your benefit. Clearly, we have found JB's kryptonite, his garlic, his crucifix. So the next time I'm off on a tear, just look at me and say, is mommy sleeping? And I will be <laughs> reduced to a puddle of jelly. Um, tell my children I love them very much. Oh, oh, <laughs> he's melting. What a world, what a world, what a world. 
in a in a summer movie season that is uh, unremarkable and that can you know as summer movies uh, continue to get worse. Obviously, this I think is still an example of a of a summer movie that works. And Disney used to do this every seven years, and obviously home video um, stepped on that. Why doesn't the studio re-release this film? Yeah. Every five years on Fourth of July weekend. I think people would go see that. I think people would go see it. I would have. Yeah, me too. Oh, well. Happy birthday, America.